Is everybody alive? Yeah. I've, uh, over the last almost 40 years now, I've uh, spent uh, on average about 130 to 140 days a year traveling internationally all over the globe, but uh, extensive amount of ministry in the UK, in England, uh, the land of good manners. And I was absolutely shocked just a few moments ago because after all the ministry I've done the UK and all the polite, refined behavior I've ever seen in UK churches, English churches, British churches, whatever you call them, I've never seen a British pastor say, you're going to keep it short, aren't you? <laughs> you, you've, you you've really become Americanized. You're, you're willing to speak up. <laughs> Well, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, you can give me that ten dollars later. Yes. Uh, I've, you know, it, it's. I was sharing last night, a little bit this morning, uh, about uh, just touching the principle: do not despise the day of small beginnings, and when God begins, begins small things, and. Uh, being a conference speaker, you know, I, I love it when you've got a conference with thousands of people because that's a real easy wave to ride. I mean, if you've got, you know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 people all singing in faith, you know, and, you know, just you could just wave a flag with a J for Jesus and something's going to happen. But historically, and obviously the most graphic example is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords the Messiah being born in a lonely stable, you know, a barn, that you can never measure the externals that God's going to be doing from what he does in small beginnings. I know you, got, you all have a history here, and you're in the dating process. Somebody said that, you know, but um, I'm very, very much in my, in my spirit impressed that uh, here in Myrtle Beach, of all places, God is really up to something. And, and I say that not just after years of ministering a wide variety of churches, but over the decades I've had the privilege of being somewhat involved in at least five major moves of the Spirit. Some of them have actually been revivals. You know, Toronto was one. The Jesus Movement in Southern California was another. Uh, the revival or move, major move of evangelism in Southeast Africa, uh, wasn't a huge thing that everybody was aware of, but for a couple of years I was very involved in a church in Baltimore uh, that just, we just saw an amazing move of the Spirit for about two to three years in the Rock Church and some other things as well. But uh, I was sharing, you know, this, this picture here of the lighthouse, you know, I didn't know it was here, it was in there, and I was sharing this morning that uh, starting a couple months ago when I began to pray about this time of being with you. And I, as I prayed, I kept seeing this vision of a lighthouse. And I saw it again a couple of days ago as I was praying. And so I thought, okay, there must be some significant lighthouse. And so I researched heavenly music. The angels are here. Oh, no, it's a cell phone. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, you know, lo and behold, you actually don't have what they consider an authentic lighthouse because what's considered an authentic lighthouse is one that's built, owned, and operated by the city, the state, the federal government, whatever. But you do have a lighthouse here in uh, Myrtle Beach. It's privately owned, privately built, uh, actually was commissioned in uh, 92 
But as I was praying into this vision, I saw the funny thing was the light was not going out to sea to warn you know ships to avoid the rocks or shallow area or whatever, but it was shining inland. And out of Psalm 36, in his light we shall see light. It was a light flowing inland to touch the, the population. But also I felt like Lord said, especially when I heard that there was going to be a couple of churches and another ministry involved in these meetings, they were speaking about the church of the city, not just the Catch of Fire or Ignite or this church or that congregation or that ministry, but there's an authority when the church of the city comes here. That doesn't mean we all do meetings together, but we're on the same page, really focused, and I shared some things about that. But I felt like that God was going to be giving a government authority, and we shared this morning about Isaiah's prophecy, there'll be no end to the increase of the government of God. And then lo and behold, you know, two things as I'm researching about the lighthouse, that lighthouse here in Myrtle Beach is actually called the Governor's Lighthouse. Yeah. It's, uh, it was built to commemorate the governors. I hope you got some decent governors in, in uh, South Carolina. We're actually trying to uh, in recall ours right now. <laughs> I mentioned that later on. Uh, but there is something that I want to encourage you in. Uh, again, that God don't despise the day of small beginnings. I believe God's up to something on a bigger level than just having a couple of days of good meetings with uh, this group here. He's up to something beyond all that. And uh, I even want to say that I think for uh, not only the churches and ministries here involved, but beyond that, that the body of Christ of Myrtle Beach is going to be coming into a new season. There's going to be a a greater awareness of what the Spirit is saying. I believe you're going to have some a fresh boldness and testimonies of just uh, really bizarre things happening in evangelism and healings and things like that. And uh, uh, I just want to encourage you. I you was know, sharing a, uh, a story, um, not a story, it's uh, something uh, truthful, <laughs> um, that uh, my home church in San Diego is a rather large church. We've been involved in a lot of international stuff. But about 15, 20 years ago, we sent out a couple from San Diego to uh, Phoenix, Arizona to start a church. And for about 15 years, that church has fluctuated between 100 and 200. It get to 200, shrink down. And, and you say, well, 100 is not bad size. You know, a church can function financially on that. But if you've ever been in ministry, it can be heartaching to see the body of Christ grow up and then whatever turmoil or disillusionment or you don't have the best this or that or sound system, whatever, whatever, you know, what the problem is. And that was the history of the church for well over 10, 12 years. But just this spring or just this uh, winter, starting January or February, they came into a move of uh, the gospel and things began to happen and now they're regularly getting close to a thousand people. And the interesting thing is they're really not doing anything different than what they've done. It's just the one who occupies the place is moving at an increased level and they're responding to that. So you're coming into a fresh season and that lighthouse the light, as I said, of Psalm 36, um, in his light we shall see light. And I think it was even last night or this morning, uh, Jane, you, you quoted from Isaiah, Arise, your light is shining. There, there's something fresh happening, and it is global. 
Uh, I wanna, I'm rambling a bit, but I kind of want to bring some things together before I get into the, the heart of the message. But historically in North America, and it's had international implications, but we've had what could be called at least four, possibly five, great awakenings. And they were called great awakenings, not just because they were one church or even the church of a city coming to revival or a fresh move of the spirit, but they impacted generations, they impacted things governmentally, they impacted all of society. In fact, they did have international implications on a huge level. The first great awakening was happened about approximately halfway through the 18th century, starting around 1740s, 50s. Jonathan Edwards uh, was in the heart of that. Um, you know, some of the guys from England uh, were, were highly involved in that, and it was just an explosive time. And the preaching of the word at that time was the primary thing. But there was this, this heavy sense, uh, the weight, uh, the Shekinah glory of God, the heaviness of God. And there was just mass repentance going on. And I just want to throw a thought at you because the word revival is thrown all over the place on the Internet. You know, a church has three good nights of meetings. say revival has come. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with having three great nights of meetings and going up three great nights of meetings, you know. But uh, historically, revival means that transformation comes to the community around us. Not just things happening within the church, but what happens in the church actually has a cause and effect for the good, for the kingdom of God. And then the, it's, some people consider it a part two, or it could be considered the second great awakening started happening around the 1790s, so and actually can happened more or less all the way to about 1840. But then about 1850 in New York City of all places, a prayer movement began, a very unusual prayer movement. And a group of uh, workers in a, in a business place in New York, they decided to start skipping uh, eating during their lunch break and praying together. And rapidly it spread, so you had hundreds if not thousands uh, every day at lunch hour of people praying, not eating during lunch break, and praying and praying, praying for New York City, praying for the nation. Now, I want to throw an interesting concept at you that when we think about an answer to prayer on that level, we think about the good things happening. We think about people being saved, people being healed, marriages getting better, broken families come together, people being set free from addictions, all that sort of, and those sort of things do. But we need to understand as well, in the heavenlies, there is great warfare that's taking place. And I believe, and I, this is not original thought with me, others have thought this long before me, that really the rising up to fight the civil war, that was for a couple of different reasons, but initially to set the slaves free, that that was a direct result of all the prayers that we're praying for God to move on our nation. Because we're praying, God, let there be a move in the spirit. And God says, well, let's not just deal with the spiritual slavery. Let's start with the natural slavery, slavery in the natural that's happening right now. Many of you must look at what's happening right now in Afghanistan. But as I shared last night a little bit today, Afghanistan last three years has had the second fastest growing church of any nation other than Iran in the whole world. And so there's cataclysmic things begin to happen in the heavenlies that can bring all sorts of things we don't understand. 
The third great, uh, and, and that released the Civil War, the third great awakening, and this is arguable, but I maintain it started with a move of the spirit that as I shared this morning or last night with houses, house prayer meetings in Melbourne, Australia. And they estimate around 1904, 1905, that one out of every four houses weekly was having a prayer meeting. They estimate that probably over 50% of the whole city was weekly gathering together, not just in churches, but praying together, calling out to God. And it released an incredible move of the Spirit. And of course, the people in Australia maintained that that was the precursor to the Welsh Revival. And uh, uh, the Welsh Revival, just uh, what happened there, touched a whole nation. Um, and uh, we don't have time to go into all that, but it, was just, it wasn't just uh, the churches growing, but it touched the whole nation to the point that literally... They, uh, a lot of police ended up out of work. There just wasn't crime. A lot of the bars closed down. They just didn't have any customers. One funny story that happened was replicated many, many times because so many miners were getting saved, working in the coal and iron mines, steel mines, is that uh, their common language, and they use primarily donkeys for hauling up the tracks, calling the ore and the materials out. Their common language was very coarse, a lot of swear words, and yelling at those donkeys and getting moving. Well, they're getting saved, they're no longer swearing. The donkeys didn't understand their new vocabulary. <laughs> now, now we laugh, but that, that was a real problem that happened. And so you've all heard about barbershop quartets. Well, barbershop quartets first really started with out-of-work policemen getting together forming gospel groups. Wow. Yeah, it's good you're here. Very educational. You, you learned about Melbourne, the revival there. So, and then we go from there to Azusa Street, from Wales to Azusa Street, and as I shared last night, what happened in a very unusual church, because in those, as much racial tensions we may have today, it was far worse, you know, 120 years ago. And this was a racially mixed small church, and it could only hold 180 people. But the move of the spirit that lasted quite a long time, there, it went from there to the nations. One of my favorite stories, I've done a lot of ministry in, in Sweden, and I see Gina there from Sweden, but also Norway that in Norway, they heard about the move of the Spirit in Azusa Street, so they st sent a, uh, a pastor, I think a, a state Lutheran pastor, to go to Azusa Street, find out what was going on, and bring back a report. And, he, and what you would do in those days, obviously, you'd take the boat, you took the boat across to New York, and as he's kind of just walking around New York for he's going to get on the train and head out all the way out to Los Angeles, he ends up meeting somebody who had been, just been, for a week or two out on Azusa Street, they began talking, the guy prayed for him, he got filled with the Spirit, he never went out to Azusa Street, he just got back on the next boat, went back to Norway, they broke out in revival in Norway. One person. I mean, think about this for a minute. If a donkey can carry in the presence of God, what can one son or daughter of God do? Mark, that was a good point. Do not be discouraged by those blank looks on their faces. Carry on. <laughs> David said, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Sometimes you just got to encourage yourself, you know. But then we go from that to what happened 10 years later, after approximately the time of Melbourne, 
the Welsh Revival and Azusa Street, the Great War broke out. Yeah. Yeah. The, they called the Great War because they had never imagined there'd be a war with as much death as took place in Europe at that time. Well, you go from there to the 1960s, early 1960s, late 50s, you had several things that began to, you know, like a perfect heavenly storm began to collide. You had the charismatic movement, the outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit that began to happen with Catholics and Presbyterians and different things. And then you had the Jesus movement that hit Southern California. And within just a few years, you had hundreds of thousands of young people coming from countercultural lifestyles and out of drugs and everything like that. And that went around the world. And so these great awakenings, they weren't just fun times for the churches. It wasn't just time of church growth, but it went on to affect the culture in a huge way. And we don't need just a little bit more of church growth. We don't, well, of course, for every person to get saved, it's hallelujah and amen. The angels are rejoicing. But we need a move of the Spirit that's going to bring transformation to a hurting, desperate culture. There's a church I minister in every year, sometimes twice a year, outside of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and Franklin, Tennessee. And a few years ago, we were doing a conference, started Thursday night, then went Friday, Saturday, and finished uh, Sunday night. And we were just, it was one of those times we were just having a very explosive uh, move of the Spirit of God. And during worship Sunday night, before I, I got up to speak, I leaned over the pastor, a good friend, I said, you know, I'm just going to submit this to you. And my wife and I, we had some flexibility, you know, and uh, I can't remember where, where, whether we had a car or what, or we'd flown in, but... I said, my, Kim and I, my wife's with me, Kim and I are willing to spend another day or two. I said, I'll just submit this to you, but I, I don't think God's done yet. I think we need to have another meeting tomorrow night. And uh, he prayed about us, we continue worship. Then he just gets up and he announces, we're going to meet again tomorrow night. So Monday morning, my wife and I are in the hotel room. It's about 10 o'clock. I get a pastor or a call from the senior pastor they had every week their whole staff, uh, the pastors and everybody else that had departments, about 25 people would come together. They'd meet at 9 o'clock. And first of all, they talked about what had happened over the last four days of the conference, the good things, the testimonies, healings, things like that. They're all stoked about that. But then Jeff brought up the fact they were meeting tonight. And he said we had three reactions. First of all, there was about a third of the staff that said, that's great, we're excited. There was another, another third that said, well, you know, um, yeah, the conference was great, but you know, um, yeah, let's get back to life. <laughs> and then there was a third component that said, listen, we're so fried, we can't do another night. We've had people take care of our children, we're stressed out, we've been doing this. And in the middle of all of this, and they have a rule in their staff meeting that everybody's phones are either turned off or they're in the silent mode. And the senior associate pastor, and I know this guy quite well, I've known him for years, he is like an Apple guru. What he doesn't know about Apple phones, iPads, Apple computers, it's not worth knowing. And he's sitting kind of near the senior pastor and as people are complaining, why do we have to do another meeting? It was a great conference. Let's just celebrate that and move on. A voice comes out of his phone, Mark, with a British accent, 
and said, this is the will of God for you, that you bring transformation to your city. And everybody's looking at him and glaring at him. And, you know, Jeff, the senior pastor, is saying, Alan, you know the rule. All phones are be off. And it's like, he holds it off. It was in silent mode. He starts scrolling through it. He holds up and says, Listen, look, I don't have a single app on my phone open. And I do not have any recordings of anybody preaching with a British accent. Sorry, Mark. Do you remember, out of the book of Daniel, the sign and wonder, when they saw the hand, the hand of the Lord, but they just saw the finger writing on the wall? Well, that was only because it was pre-tech days. <laughs> that was a Holy Spirit sign and wonder. And Jeff called me and said, Mark, the whole staff right now, we're just on our faces, just weeping and calling out to God. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that endless meetings is the goal. That's not it. But God wants to release things as we gather together and seek his face that have a far bigger impact. And as I said last night, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein is, we're not going to solve the current problems we have by operating the same way by which we created those problems. We need to change our thinking. And by that, I'm simply saying we need to perceive and understand what's going on in the world today from God's perspective. And we need to be as the sons of Issachar, who says knew the times and seasons and knew what Israel should do. Are you still alive? And so God's up to some things. So there's no trite little formula like let's just have endless meetings or let's, you know, get a better lighting system for the stage or, you know, <laughs> you know let's do this, let's do that, or have 18-hour sermons and, oh, heaven help us. It's, uh, it's a matter of responding to the Lord because where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Now, like some of you who have ministered in third world countries, especially countries like India or Asia, um, Africa, South America, in a lot of the world, they simply have a, a lot more faith through the supernatural. So it's easier to see healings, miracles, signs, and wonders because they're just open to that in general. And I maintain that anybody that's only ministered in Africa or South America who's on about your miracles, I, I'd say, well, why don't you come to Germany with me? Let me, let me, let's, let's see what you do there. You know? But anyway, that's, that's, I'm just having fun with people. But uh, I, I have been in those places, like we've seen sometimes uh, half of a village in one night come to Lord Jesus because of miracles, signs, and wonders. But um, in the Western world nations, as I was talking about today, it's not quite the same, but it is in that when signs, wonders, miracles happen, when there's an outpouring of God's presence, it awakens people. That's why they're called signs and wonders. It's a sign that there is a being that we know as God that's bigger than science, medicine, technology, and everything else to be explained. And it gets people wondering. Now, when I've been in Africa, for example, or places in Mexico where we've seen in some meetings just 
gobs and gobs of miracles, it's been unto evangelism. But when I've been in a few places in the United States or in England or Europe on those rare occasions where we haven't just seen one or two or three miracles, but we've seen dozens and dozens of miracles in one night, the interesting scenario is it's always followed an intense time of worship in the meeting. Not something we've contrived, not something we've tried to make happen. But the reason I'm telling you this is because Paul knew what he was talking about, and he obviously was saying in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> that where the Spirit is, there is liberty. So last night, <clears throat> I spoke out of Psalm 73 that on a personal level, we can look at everything happening around us, and we can be so discouraged and thinking, Lord, what's going on? And that's essentially what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 73, but then we get towards the end of it, and he said... I was close to, you know, fear and worry until I came into your sanctuary and I saw the end of all things. Because in God's light, we see light. As we draw near to God and we really experience him, clarity comes. We begin to see things from God's perspective. But that's on an individual level. You can seek God Monday morning. You can seek him late Wednesday night. You can certainly do it in church. But when we come together... There is the synergy of one, so to speak, putting a thousand to flight, two putting ten thousand. Things begin to get multiplied. In Psalm 22, verse 1, it reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know Jesus quoted that on the cross. But it goes on to say, Why are you so, f why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And see, one of the, the, the great truths that we need to discover in the Western world is God puts a premium on community. And I'm all over it. When, you know, when, when you're on your own, whenever you do your devotions, your private time with the Lord, worship him, read the word, Pray in tongues if you do that. Call out to him and intercede. It's all very, very important, you know, what we do as individuals. But God also puts a premium on us coming together. And as the psalmist said, God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. And one of the great things that came about, really, uh, over the last 40 years or so, in the Western world nations is there's been a rediscovery of worship. Yeah. And that up until the vineyard movement, and one of the keys of the vineyard movement was a focus on singing to God. There's always been songs about singing to God, like what came out of the Welsh revival, Be Thou My Vision. But predominantly what was sung, sung in churches were songs about God or songs pra uh, praising what he has done and what he will do. But under especially the first 10 years or so out of the Vineyard Movement, it was right on the heels of the Jesus Movement, something was released about we can sing to God. We can really experience his tangible presence as we draw near to him, and as he is faithful, he draws near to us. Is this making sense? 
the, we're, we're called to about at least five essentials as the people of God. First of all, we're called to obedience. I hope that didn't destroy anybody's night, but <laughs> Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my, abandon, my uh, commandments. I said, oh, I just love God. Well, why don't you do what he says? Well, never mind. We won't go there. <laughs> Number two, a lifestyle of prayer. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ of God in, of, in Christ Jesus for you. That prayer is simply communing with God. It's not only interceding, but it's interesting, isn't it, that when Paul talked about being filled with the Spirit, he talked about always singing songs to the Lord, making melody in your heart. Because that's really the, the most biblical sign of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, having communion with God. The third key characteristic or essential of, Christ, of, of, of biblical Christian life is extending God's love every chance we get. It could be a chance encounter with somebody at a restaurant or the airport, or also means serving one another in the church. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he didn't stop there. He said, second is almost the same, to love your neighbor as yourself. The fourth would be practicing community. And I can, I can say this not because I'm great at it, because I've observed the difference between the church in Africa and the church in the West, the church in Asia, as opposed to the church in England or Canada or the United States. We tend to think in the Western world as lone rangers. What am I going to do? What's God calling me to do? What's God saying to me? But really... It's the church that God's focused on. And all the one another's, you have to be with someone to actually do those things. God is first, last, and in between about one thing, relationship. Relationship with him and out of that relationship with one another. Um, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your miracles. No, he didn't say that. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your great theology. Nope, he didn't say that either. Say, he said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And there's something about the one another where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. You meet some people, and some churches I go to every year, and some churches I can find somebody during the coffee break I met uh, five years ago, and say, oh, yeah, I came to this conference five years ago when you are at this other church, and... Uh, I said, well, oh, are you not going to that church anymore? I said, well, you know, they just didn't have any room for the prophetic. So I left there. I said, well, what did you do after that? Well, I went to this other church on this side of town. They love the prophetic. I said, so that's where you're going now? No, I go to a different church. Well, I thought you loved the prophetic. Well, yeah, but they really didn't have a, a heart for missions and evangelism. <laughs> oh, so you're going to church and the mission thing. He says, well, I was, <laughs> but uh, now I'm going to this church. And you know, there's an old saying that if you ever find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll just really screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> the reality is we are an imperfect people coming out of the ways of the world through the journey of a lifetime learning to be like Jesus. And none of us are quite there yet. So the rubber meets the road of Christianity not by our declarations, not by our signs and wonders, not by our revelations, not by our great theology, but by loving one another. And loving one another means forgiving one another, putting up with one another. Yeah. 
seen past one another's foibles and idiosyncrasies and present immaturities because as Paul said, God will, is faithful. He will complete the good work. He's begun with it in each one of us. And so a mature Christian, I think, can be summed up in two, two words. A mature Christian is one who gives because that's what our Heavenly Father is like. He so loves that he gave his very best. And number two, like the Father who forgave us because he gave us Jesus, a mature Christian is also one who forgives. You know, some, you know, some of you pastors here, you could spend the next 16 weeks teaching on mature Christianity. I've, I've, I've reduced it two minutes for you. <laughs> mature Christian is one who gives and forgives and lives that out as a lifestyle. But we have a real brokenness in the body of Christ in the Western world nations because we get peeved at people, we have this issue with that person, that issue, you know, and, you know, uh, you know no, that, that's not what love is. Yeah. And especially uh, in the Western world right now, not just in the church, but in all of our society, the word of, the, uh, the C word, commitment, it's been thrown away. There's a lack of commitment in marriage, there's lack of commitment in jobs, both from employers to employees and vice versa, and a lack of commitment to the body of Christ. And I'm not throwing some legalistic trip anybody saying if you don't do this, you measure up. But love is the goal. That's why Paul said the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And love means putting up with people. And not just putting up with people in the body of Christ, but even when we're not living up to our best, seeing God's best in one another. Okay, I'll move on from that. I, I see those looks on your faces. Okay, can we, can we move past that? Okay, but then there's the fifth aspect of, of the essentials of walking with God, and that is worship. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So, what do we know about heaven? Turn with me in the book of, uh, book of Revelation, chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first vo voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. There's times, to, time to time, so to speak, God says to you, come up here. I want to show you things from my vantage point. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were the 24 thrones, and seated in the thrones were the 24 elders clothed in white garments and, and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. It absolutely kills me when I hear people say, oh, I go to heaven two or three times a week. I look at them and say, I don't think so. And they say, well, how can you be so sure? I say, because you're still alive. <laughs> and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and with them. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When the prophet in the Old Testament saw this vision of the seraphim hovering over the throne of God, and there's two types of angels we know are right around the throne. There's the cherubim, which are around, but then there's the seraphim that hover over. And it's interesting, the word seraph, it could be translated loosely as starting fires. John Wesley was asked, how do you start a fire? How do you start a revival? He said, I let myself on fire and I collect a crown. I watch, watch, let people watch me burn for God. Our God is a consuming fire. And so this the seraphim that hover, and in the prophetic account, they've got six wings. With two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they, uh, they cover their feet. And with two wings, they're hovering there. And they're in this mode of continual worship of God. Now, depending upon your church background, you could think of saying, Oh, holy, holy, holy. Or if you're a good liturgical, holy, holy, holy. Or, you know, <laughs> whatever you're from. I, I have a little bit different take on it because this is just my theory. But it, the, the prophetic account says they peek between, or they, they cover the, they have the wings covering their eyes. I think they peek a little bit. And I think as they peek a little bit, they're experiencing a, a principle of God that transcends both here and there. Because what God establishes here is also true up there. And that, tr that principle is, if you will draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And so we're invited, the Bible tells us, to go from glory to glory, from strength to strength, not from mediocrity to mediocrity. And we're to be transformed by that glory. So as we press in upon God, God is faithful. He draws near to us. He inhabits the praises of his people. And he wants to open our eyes to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the wonder, the majesty, the glory, the compassion of who he is. St. Augustine said this about the glory of God. He said, God is like this vast circle that no matter how far you go towards the center, you're never going to come to the center. And no matter how far you go on the outskirts, you're never going to exhaust the glory of God. Because as the psalmist said, the glory of God is unsearchable. It's without end. And so part of our journey here on earth is not only to impact the world with the goodness of God and the kingdom, but we're personally and as a people to go from glory to glory because as another well-known Catholic, St. Francis of Assisi said, evangelize always and when necessary use words. Right. Yes. See, it's not just God wants you to do evangelism. Yes. He wants you to be so attractive in Christ Jesus 
that people say, I don't know what they've got, <laughs> but I want it. A group of our young leaders in our church, you know, we're at San Diego, just Mexico's right across the border. And uh, we've got a lot of surfers in our church, and we've had four young couples in our church with their kids. They go down twice a year. They rent a place right on uh, the, the, the coast here in, California, in, in Baja and do a lot of good surfing. Well, this last spring, the, the four couples with their kids all went down there for four long days, and they rented this uh, uh, condo that had like um, five uh, condo units in there uh, for the four days, and the other condo was being rented by this non-Christian couple. I feel sorry for that couple because my friends have a lot of kids, and they were just all over the place. They're having these community these barbecues together, and they, you know, it's just mayhem, you know. Anyway, but after the second day, this unsaved couple, they kind of hinted, hey, we'd love to eat with you. We'd love to hang around you. And they started having their meals with them, breakfast and dinner, joining the barbecues, and you know, just hanging out at the beach, you know. And then the last day, they're all packing up, getting ready to leave. This unsaved couple comes to them and says, you know, we don't know what you've got, but we want it. There's something different. And they prayed with them. They gave their lives to Jesus. You see, the messenger is the message. It's not just what we say and what we do. It's who we are. That's why at prophetic conferences, I love it when people come up to me and they say, do you have a prophetic word for me? Because even if I don't get a prophetic word, I've got a prophetic word for them. I say to them, I absolutely know the will of God for your life. Really, what is it? Am I going to win the lottery? <laughs> no, it's Romans 8, 29, that God has ordained that you would be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. But how do we do that? Yes, discipleship is part of the key. We grow as we go, as we walk in discipleship. We begin to unlearn the ways of the world and learn the ways of God. And things like, uh, you know, addictions and bad habits, not that you've ever had any. I'm saying this for the benefit of the church meeting down the road. But those things begin to fall away. But there's more to it than that. It's not just saying no to destructive behavior and yes to positive behavior, but it's Christ within us. Paul, in his writings, he talked about three different mysteries, the mystery of righteousness, the mystery of lawlessness, but he talked about the mystery throughout the ages that the prophets longed to fully understand the mystery of Christ within us. And so there's this whole art that God calls us to of being filled with the Spirit. And again, as Psalm 36 says, in his light we see light. There's a woman, she went home to the Lord about 20 years ago. Um, um, Ruth Van Hef uh, Heflin, I think her name was. Heflin, yeah. Um, she said something that I've been carrying around with me for about three decades now, wrote in one of her books. She said, the easiest way to be conformed to Jesus is to spend time gazing upon him in worship. Because, she said, you become like that which you look upon. Mm -hmm. 
There's a whole message there about avoiding too much television, but we won't go there. And so we see this scene in heaven with the elders in worship throwing down their crowns, not clinging to any posture of success or prestige or authority. But we also see these beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. And my theory is, despite the fact that they covered their eyes with two of the rings, I think they're peaked a little bit. Because, see, they've been doing this for a millennium of millenniums. And if we go from glory to glory as we gaze upon God, just think about the incredible, deeper and deeper revelation they've been going into as they gaze upon God. So, I think, you know, they, they kind of peek between the, the feathers a little bit, or whatever it is, and it's not holy, 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 it's, oh, holy, holy, holy. And I think they're gone for about half an hour. Uh, when I was a teenager in my early 20s, we were absolutely crazy. We were... I and a lot of my good friends, we were into hardcore rock climbing. I did a little bit of surfing, but most of my close friends did a lot of big wave surfing. One guy, he literally, the week he graduated from high school in California, he moved to the North Shore of Hawaii, and he just lived there for five years waiting for the wintertime for the big waves. He used to go off 30-foot waves. You know? I asked him one time, I said, Chris, what's it like when you start down a 30-foot wave? He said... It's like standing on a four-story building and just jumping off, you know. But we were crazy, you know. And uh, But two friends of mine, and one of them literally was one of the highest-rated uh, rock climbers in the world at that time, in the 70s. Um, he and another guy, they were average surfers. And in Northern California, they went out on a big day. They weren't good enough to take waves like that. The waves were 10 or 12 feet. And the first wave they tried to take in, they just got trashed. You know, their boards ended up about a half mile down the beach, and they almost drowned. They swam in. They're just made to shore. They're gasping for breath, and one looks at another and says, let's do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's how the seraphim are. They're just overcome. Now, of course, I'm speaking hypothetically. This is from the book of Mark, not from the book of Mark, but... They're just overcome, and they say, let's do it again. And again, they press in on the Lord. Yeah. And so it continues by saying, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. And I'm not going to read it all, but it talks about the myriads of myriads worshiping the throne of God. And Revelation 5, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And so when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, 
Could it be saying, could he be saying, first things first, get good at ministering to the presence of God? Because God inhabits the resting, he inhabits the, the praises of his people, he's enthroned upon it. See, as I said, there's the cherubim around the throne, but then there's the seraphim, they hover over, worshiping God. So to speak, they're making a living canopy over him. And so in Psalm 22, verse 3, when it says, God inhabits the praises of our, our people, when we really enter into worship, not just singing praise songs, not just singing songs of thanksgiving, that's good, that's important. It has our place. But we got there a little bit tonight, but when you really get there, you realize that you're experiencing what you're hoping to do in the first place. You're worshiping God, not just in truth, not just singing scripturally correct songs, but you're ministering him in the spirit. Like the Levites who used to go into the holy place and burn the incense, that our praises and our worship and our prayers, they rise up like a sweet incense in the nostrils of God. You and I cannot really create anything. I mean, even the real geniuses, like some of the artists or inventors we look at, we think, wow, that's creativity. But where does their gifting come from? It comes from God. And it's not like they're not coming up with something that God couldn't do anyway or didn't know about anyway. But yet, when you say the simple words, Jesus, I love you. When you sing out, God, you're so good. We do it thousands of times. You know, we probably do it at least 100 times on a Sunday. God, you're so good, or God, I love you. We think, okay, we're singing the song, it's important to do this. But see, when you worship God, you're actually giving him the gift of the only thing you can really give him, because everything else you give him, he's given to you in the first place. But when you speak out those words, you're like your heavenly father that looked at the chaos on the earth, and he spoke out words of light and life and fruitfulness. And so it becomes a meeting place between these words that sometimes are quite simple. I was uh, doing a conference years ago in, I'll say it correctly, Gothenburg, Sweden. We call it Gothenburg, but it's Gothenburg. Did I say that correctly? More or less. <laughs> she, she actually translated for me <laughs> in Stockholm one time. But uh, uh, we were doing a conference there, and the Pentecostal Bible School, which is the largest Pentecostal Bible School in Sweden, is there in Gothenburg. They asked me to do some teaching to the Bible students, and so I taught on prayer and prophecy. And I said, in, in one of the sessions, I said, now the greatest part of prayer is not just speaking about our needs to God, but it's listening to the Lord. And I talked about the art of listening, waiting upon the Lord. Then we had another session, and I said, uh, I said now in this session, I'm not going to teach. We're going to spend time in prayer, but we're not going to speak to the Lord. We're just going to wait upon the Lord. So you're not here to pray for your ministry, pray for your church, pray for the city, pray for your nation and the missionaries. You're here just to listen. And I don't know, we had maybe 40 students, and some of these students were already in ministry. Some of them were already pastoring, you know, and involved in different things. But these 30, 40 students, we spent 45 minutes just waiting upon the Lord. There was one young man, and I remember they had a big plate glass window in the, the back of the room. 
He stood up the whole time with his arms held up, which is very difficult for 30, 40 minutes, with just streams of tears coming down his eyes. So, you know, I'm pretty quick, you know. I, I'm discerning something's happening with him. So at the end of the meeting, I call him up and I say, are you able to share what God was doing in your heart, what he was speaking to you during that time of waiting upon the Lord? And he was still weeping, and it took him a few minutes to say this, but I'll never forget the words he said. And I want to qualify this by saying I found an afterwards from the teacher that he was a third-generation Pentecostal preacher. His grandfather had been a pioneering Pentecostal pastor in Sweden, like in the 30s and 40s. His father was now a Pentecostal pastor, and he was being raised up in ministry. So he's a young man that's serious about his walk with God. He's serious about serving God. And he's grown up in a godly family. But he said these words after these 30, 40 ministers waiting upon the Lord. He said, I've just seen Jesus. What am I supposed to do with my life now? You see, like Isaiah, when he was brought up before the throne of God, gazing upon the glory of God, he came undone. He said, I've come undone. And he hears the Lord say these words, who will I send? What can he do but say, here am I, send me. You see, our God is a consuming fire. And when the glory of God comes, when the Shekinah glory of God really comes, that we were actually singing a little bit tonight, it provokes you. It provokes you either to repentance like Isaiah or it provokes you to rebellion, one or the other. Because there's clarity that comes. Our sins are revealed in the light of his presence, the Psalms say. And so things that we think may have been cool, may have been kosher, may have been okay, all of a sudden God is saying, you wonder why you've been stuck at this level in life for such a long time. I've been trying to speak to you. I've spoken to you through the pastors, the preaching, the teachers, all that stuff out there. But oh God, when the fire of God comes, it's a consuming fire. And this is the one common denominator about all major moves of the Spirit, and especially the awakenings. And it's something that really in the history of the American church, we haven't experienced for well over 100 years. And that is a move that's characterized by a revelation of the majesty and the holiness of God and his throne. And I'm not saying the moves we've had are bad. They've been incredible. Toronto, the revelation of the Father's heart, the charismatic move, a fresh revelation that the gifts are today, and uh, the importance of the Word of God, the Jesus movement, the evangelism, all the different moves, they've all been important. They've all been ordained from God. But yet, as we look at these moves, they've really failed to impact society. But yet, when we look at the Great Awakening of the mid-18th century, we look at the Great Awakening, what happened in, you know, in the mid-part of the 19th century. We look at what happened at Azusa Street. It wasn't something that just remained in the church and changed the lives of the Christians and a few more people getting saved and healed. It brought change to society. The, I can't say it in a British accent, but the will of God 
is that we bring transformation to our cities. Are you still alive? Well, I better mellow out. I don't want anybody to accuse me of preaching. So there's this thing called worship. It's not the only thing we're called to do, but it's one of the greatest things we're called to do that I believe everything comes out of. I'm, gonna, I'm working towards a close here because we want to save plenty of time for ministry. Many of you are familiar with this story. It's found in Second Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat was one of the greatest kings in Judah's history. Uh, uh, he was really a man of God who sought after God. And in Second Chronicles chapter 20, it tells the story that three different nations gathered together and sent large armies to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. And it says something that I think we can all relate to in verse 3. It says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I mean, anybody that tells you that they're a man or woman of faith, they never have fear, they're lying through their teeth. <laughs> See, fear is like temptation. It's going to come at you. The question is, do you walk into that cave of fear, or do you keep your eyes focused on the Lord? And so Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And so they did this together, and again, I'm all for each and every one of us as individuals, married couples, seeking the Lord on our own, growing in the adventures God calls us to, the destiny, the calling, that's vitally important. But there's something about the body of Christ coming together in unity to seek the Lord. It says in the book of Acts, and I referred to this this morning, that when persecution after many years began to come against the early day church, Peter and John had been arrested for performing that miracle. So it set off a riot because everybody in Jerusalem knew about the lame beggar outside the temple. And they were threatened not to preach the gospel anymore, but they gathered together the saints and they prayed. And they prayed in Acts 4, verse 23. They said, uh, verses, uh, starting verse 29, they cried, uh, they said, Lord, give us a boldness to preach the gospel. Let your hand move in healings and miracles. But what I really want to draw your attention to, to drive this point, is in verses 23, 24, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God. Together, they came together, the early church. And they said, Sovereign God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They came to God with an awareness that he is the great I am. And no matter what's happened in the world around us, he is never anything less than that. And so it says in verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 20, they worshiped God and they proclaimed who he is. They said, you rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Now I know that as we look at what's happening in the world today, with the threat of war possibly against Iran, against Israel, or North Korea, what could happen there with their nuclear arsenal? And one of the great concerns I have right now, and, and I don't intend this at all as a political statement, but there will be serious ramifications of what happened in Afghanistan 
because China has been waiting in the wings to see how we responded to threats right now because they want to go after Taiwan. The only thing that has kept them from taking back Taiwan for the last 70 years or so is America said, you are allies, we're going to stand by you. We are on very serious ground right now. Six years ago, I went for the first time to uh, the Ukraine, and I did a pastor's conference for three, four days there. But first I began with a small meeting with about a dozen uh, leaders of churches, key leaders from throughout the Ukraine. And one of the things I said in that two-hour uh, meeting is I said, as an American, I want to apologize to you. Because, you see, this is two presidencies ago. We were under a signed treaty with the Ukraine that if they were ever invaded by Russia, we would military-wise stand with them. Guess what? We did not do that. They were invaded by the Russians at Crimea, and we did nothing. One of the pastors who was in that meeting, he had to abandon a large church that he had pastored and planted years ago in Crimea. People in his church were killed, including one of his associate pastors, by the invading Russians, and he had lost everything and had to move to Kiev. But we as a nation had said years before, we will stand with you. We didn't do it. So, ever since Taiwan broke off of China, 1953, China has wanted to take it back. They've made threat after threat. And just two days ago, for the first time, Russian jets were flying over Taiwan airspace. And I am not making a political statement. But I'm saying we are living in a very precarious time right now. And it can't just be a time where we look upon, and I'm guilty, as guilty of this as anybody else, where you look upon church as, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless me. No, we're here for a bigger purpose. We're here to give the nations as an inheritance to Christ Jesus. God rules over the nation. Why do you think that for the last 50 years there hasn't been at least one nuclear bomb dropped from one country onto another? It's simply been because whether we see it or not, whether we realize how it happens or not, God is at the helm. It's purely been the grace of God that's prevented there from being at least one nuclear bomb dropped. You know? Things are so precarious, but yet they worship God just as they did in the book of Acts hundreds and hundreds of years later out of the revelation, the theology, the understanding that he's God Almighty. Verse 12, they recognized their dependence upon God with these three armies that were surrounding Jerusalem. They said, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. They realized that in and of themselves, they were incapable of dealing with the looming problems. And they said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
And I don't know about you, but I've been so perplexed at time to time with problems in my life. I've just, I haven't said exactly like this, but Lord, I don't know what to do. But I know you do have the answers. And then they worshiped the Lord. They worshiped him. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17, it says, The Lord said to them as they came together and worshiped him, said to him prophetically, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. They were greatly outnumbered, but the Lord said, you're going to be a majority of one (laughs) as you go out in unity. Pentecost Day, 120 men. Hiding out not just in, because of obedience to pray, but I think they were fearful. They were fearful the same persecution that came against Jesus could come against them as his disciples. But the spirit of Pentecost fell, and they were transformed from fearful, fear, uh, fearfulness to fearlessness. And they preached the gospel. Thousands got saved. The church was birthed that day. In verse 20, the Lord spoke and said, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Well, that sounds a little bit sketchy today, because there's so much bogus stuff being prophesied in the name of the Lord that I I won't even go in that direction. You've got to use discernment when you get on those prophetic sites out there. You've got to pray. Don't just accept things. But yet, the principle is still true, that God will do nothing without first revealing it to his people. And so there's this onus upon us, this weight upon us to press in upon the Lord. Not just you and me in our homes, that's important, but collectively to seek his face. Because it's time to not just walk out of here with blessings, but to begin to go from glory to glory, from strength to strength, from breakthrough to breakthrough. And it says in verse 21, about Jehoshaphat, when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were with those who were um, those who were there to sing to the Lord and uh, to praise Him in holy attire, the worshippers, the worshiping Levites. So get this: the next day in battle, they went before the army. Everybody felt good about that, except the worshiping Levites. You've all seen the movies, you know, Lord of the Rings, the big epic battles. You know, that first come the foot soldiers with those shields, and they have big shields, and when the enemy sends the cask, you know, this huge rain of arrows coming down, they hide behind those shields. Well, guess what, you know? <laughs> those worshiping Levites didn't have any shields. Go ahead, boys. <laughs> we'll be right behind you. And they went out before the army, and they sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for a steadfast love endures forever. It was the same principle in Jericho, marching around that city, that impenetrable fortress, for seven days. And on the seventh day, they began to sing to the Lord. So in verses 28 and 30, well, let me back up. But the Lord just ended up decimating the enemy. 
And you know, there was so much spoil, it says it took them three days to gather it up. In verses 28 through 30, it says, When they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for the Lord gave them rest all around. There's something about coming together within the context of worship. There's a guy in our, my home church. His name is Randy. Randy's uh, late 50s, maybe early 60s. Um, Randy was just starting to get to know the Lord, the Lord a little bit. It's a long story. I won't tell you all of it. But he, uh, in East San County, he was walking to store, and he saw the girl that in high school he had a crush on, but he had never had the nerve to talk to her. And so uh, uh, she got married, and uh, her husband um, died about 15 years later. Now she's a, a, a widowed woman, but she loves God, walking with God. And this woman is walking the store. She actually started getting a little bit nervous because she thought she had a stalker. And uh, she's thinking, well, at least I'm kind of in a public place. And so she, she's kind of wide-eyed, and Randy walks up to her after following her for about 10 minutes throughout the store. Says, you probably don't remember me, but we went to school together, and I always had a crush on you. I was afraid to talk to you. And, but, uh, you know, and so... Make a long story short, uh, they kind of, kind of dated. But Patty, uh, his future wife, was a very committed Christian, and she said to him, "I cannot seriously date anybody that doesn't love Jesus." So Randy did the smart thing. He started attending church with her on Sunday mornings to our church. Randy ended up getting saved. But when it came to the things of the Spirit, like really in-depth, prolonged time of worship or prophecy or shouting out praise to God or things with healing and all of that, he wanted nothing to do with it. So this is about six, seven years ago before my wife and I had moved back to San Diego. And I was in town doing three days of meetings, and we were going to start Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. So Saturday... Randy calls up Patty and says, what are you doing tomorrow night? Can I take you out for dinner? She said, no, we've got the uh, guest speaker, Mark Duponton, and uh, I want to go to the meeting. And uh, Randy said, oh, well, I'll go with you. And she said, no, I, I don't want you to go with me because I really want to stay focused on the meeting because I'm expecting to hear from the Lord. I don't want you bothering me. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, oh, you know, I, I, I won't. I won't bother you. I'll, uh, and she says, well, Randy, every time we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, or there's praying for the sick or any sort of prophecy, you just, you just you know, kind of poo-poo it, you know. And, uh, and he said, oh, oh no, I'll, I'll pay attention. I'll be focused. So they're sitting there, and uh, we get to the ministry time. The Lord gave me a word of knowledge that he wanted to heal people with deaf ears. And uh, Randy had a deaf uh, ear. Now he's sitting on Patty's left and he's got this deaf left ear. And Patty turns to him and says, you hear that? Go on up there, get prayer. He says, I'm not going up there. She said, yeah, you need to get up there, you need to get prayer. The Lord will hear you. No, I'm not going up there. And so she kept trying to encourage him. He refused to go up. And we have both of them on a video testimony that a number of people came up, prayed for them, 
And the Lord had me again, and Randy and Patty, they were sitting up in the, the bleacher areas of our church. Um, they, they swear that when I said this, I looked right at where Randy was sitting. Randy actually says, when I was said this the second time, he was actually trying to hide behind the seat. I said, there's somebody with a deaf left ear. You should have come up here, and you didn't. And Patty's elbowing him, saying, get up there. He says, I'm not going up there. So he refused to go up, you know. And uh, about 10 minutes go by, we're continuing off the meeting. And about two or three seats away, there's a couple of teenage girls that are kind of quietly talking among themselves. Randy turns to Patty and said, have those girls been talking this loud the whole meeting? She looks over and I can barely hear them. <laughs> Just sitting there, his ear got healed. Now, you can say, well, he had unbelief, he didn't go forward. But as I said this morning, I'm so grateful Jesus never said you need a mountain of faith to move a mustard seed of a problem. Sometimes faith is just being at the right place at the right time. Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. This is about eight years ago. They were doing a prophetic conference. There's a young single mom, well, she was about maybe 35 at the time. Uh, name is Lisa. Her son's name will come to me in a moment. Uh, uh, her son wanted nothing to do with God, wanted nothing to do with church. He was about 16 years old. He was angry at God because his so-called Christian dad had abandoned him and his mom. He's angry at the whole world. He's starting to get into petty crime. He's got problems going on. And she's threatening to kick him out of the house. Now, you all live here in nice, nice, cool South Carolina. You know, getting kicked out of a house in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada in the wintertime is no laughing matter. <laughs> so she didn't even go to the church I was going to, but she saw an advertisement in the newspaper about this prophetic conference. So she said to her son, you're going with me to this prophetic conference. Oh, no, I'm not. Well, if you don't, I'm kicking you out of the house. Okay. So they come the first night. And... Uh, uh, she drags him up, makes him sit in the second row. And we had a long time of worship, just heavy presence of the Lord. So with all of his problems going on, he was also a weightlifter. And about a month before, he had really damaged, I think it was his left shoulder and neck. It was so bad he couldn't turn the left at all. And after a month of pain and agony, not being able to sleep, he finally went to the chiropractor that day, and the therapist said, it's going to take at least two months of therapy for this to be right. So he's angry at God, angry at his mom, angry at the world. And I, I vaguely remember him because, uh, you know, I, I met him the, the, a couple nights later. He just sat here like this, you know, uh, big intimidating weightlifting guy, you know. So... Wouldn't you know it, during the ministry time, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge he wanted to heal people with neck and shoulder problems. He refused to come up, and uh, he's sitting there saying, these people are a bunch of idiots. There is no God, and even if there is a God, he's not going to heal these people. And he's just kind of mocking them because some of them are being prayed for. You know, they're really powerfully being touched by the Spirit. And then wouldn't you know it, the Lord gave me a follow-up word. I said, there's somebody with a really messed up neck and shoulder. You should have come up here, but you didn't. And I just want you to know that God loves you, and he's bigger than the issues you have, and he still wants to heal you. Now he's beginning to think, something's happening here. 
And I said, wherever you are, wherever you're sitting right now, you don't need to come up. Just right where you're at, hold your hands out to God. You know, meet with you. So he looks around to make sure nobody's looking at him and takes his hands on his lap. Instantly, the pain was gone. He gave his life to Lord Jesus that night. His mother's thrilled, but now it's late. It's 11 o'clock, and I, know, I see those looks and faces. No, we're not going to 11 o'clock tonight. She cannot find him anywhere in the church building. She goes out to their car, parked out in the gravel, dirt parking lot. He's not there. She walks in and can't find him. She walks out, and she hears a bunch of teenagers laughing and some of them speaking in tongues. And she sees a, bear, a pair of brand new white Nikes sticking up in the air. She had just bought, Ryan his name, Ryan, a brand new pair of white Nikes. She thought, surely that's... And what had happened was, after the meeting ended, a group of teenagers from the church, they didn't recognize Ryan, they walked up and her just fell, started talking, and said, well, you're a Christian. I just gave my life to Jesus. And they said, well, come outside. Let's pray if you'd be filled with the Spirit. Wow. He got slam donkeys up on his backside, his legs up, and speaking in tongues. So the mom gets some of them to help him get him in the car. Driving home, the whole way home, he's got his hands up, speaking in tongues. Now... Because Ryan was a bit of a problem, the master bedroom of the condo was upstairs, but months before she traded bedrooms and she stepped downstairs because she didn't want Ryan sneaking out at night. Ryan's upstairs and every half hour throughout the whole night, he's knocking on her door saying, Mom, I've been reading the Gospel of John and this is what God is showing me. Now, this is great, but, you know, at this point, revival her for her means about four hours of sleep, you know. She finally comes out, gets some sleep, comes out about 10 o'clock in the morning. There's a hefty garbage bag there filled with all the porno that Ryan had in his room she didn't even know about. Today, Ryan is on staff with a church in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada, and he trains uh, he takes out teams doing street evangelism, moving in prophecy. Now, obviously, I, to I told you about Randy. I told you about Ryan, you know, and those are one-off, a little bit anecdotal. I understand that, but my point is that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's incredible liberty. And when we get filled up to the point where collectively streams of living water are flowing out of our innermost being, You'll have people saying to you, I don't know what you've got, but I want it. I need it. And this is why in Psalm 149, the New American Standard, it says God beautifies the afflicted one's salvation. He gets us Jesus-sized to the point that we begin to reflect him. And this is why Ruth Ward Heflin said, you become like that which you gaze upon. And she said the quickest way about bringing change in your life is to spend time in worship gazing upon the Lord. So worship is not the only thing we're called to do. We're called to be people who serve one another, serve the lost, love people, all sorts of things. I believe we're to be involved in every sphere of influence. But when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth, 
It begins with worship. And it ends with that. Are you still alive? Let's stand. Uh, Jane, do you mind coming up and... When I teach on prophecy, when I teach the 101 beginning thing of prophecy, I tell people, begin by prophesying scripture, because even if you're wrong, you're right, because scripture is always true. <laughs> Except for, don't prophesy Judas went out and hung himself. You go and do likewise. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, put a hand on the shoulder of the person next to you. And I want you to look at them, and I want you to say to them, this is the word of the Lord to you tonight. Give glory to God, who can do far more than you can think or ask, according to his power that works through you. Just allow those words to settle in. I know sometimes it can be kind of awkward or funny or weird to do something like this. But allow those words. Someone just spoke life, prophetic life into you. Someone just spoke prophetic life into you. And you can feel the holiness of God upon this moment. Just keep your focus on the Lord. Ash, would you come up here right now? Murray and Ash, pastoring in Raleigh, have been good friends for a number of years. And, uh, Ash comes from Australia, Melbourne, right? Yeah, where I've ministered a lot in Melbourne. But, uh, they've been very involved in not only local ministry pastoring, but international ministering and, and with an apostolic sense for years now. But Ash, I, she didn't know I was going to do this. What is the Lord doing with you today, last night today? Well, I, I, I've, I've just actually, just over the last weeks, just been feeling an increase in hunger for more. So this weekend, this time has been wonderful. But even just um, last night and this morning, um, I just have felt the heavy presence, like the weighty presence of the Lord upon my hands and just I think just the more I focus on him the thicker his presence becomes and it's just been beautiful it's just been so so beautiful so I just want to invite you can you do this yeah I just I just want to I just want to invite you even right now you know, this is, it's not just, it is about what we're receiving here, but it's about what we get to take and, and, and carry and who we carry as those donkeys <laughs> into the world around us. And so I just invite you, just stretch out your hands in faith. Fix the eyes of your hearts on Jesus. Lord, we, we, I just release the weight of your presence upon each and every one of us right now. The weight of your glory, Lord. We just say yes. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
We love you, beautiful Saviour, heaven's champion, Prince of Peace, wonderful Counselor, everlasting Father, almighty God. We welcome you. We love you. We adore you. Just come with your presence even more. Thicken your presence. Thicken your presence. Thicken your presence. We receive you right now. going to call people forward. I don't want to embarrass anybody by this and I ask that we don't primarily keep our eyes closed. But if you suffer from ongoing depression and particularly if you feel 
maybe have been told by a doctor or a psychiatrist or psychologist that you have some sort of chemical imbalance. Uh, maybe you're on antidepressants, things like that. Uh, again, this is not to embarrass anybody, but if that's you, would you just raise a hand up to the Lord? Just hold it up to the Lord. And Father, upon these men and women raising their hands right now, I ask for release from your heart, Father God, of your perfect love that casts out fear. Fear of the what-ifs, fear of failure, fear of not measuring up, fear of rejection. I break off the stronghold of fear and I proclaim over you God's perfect love casts out fear. I bless your heart and your soul right now in the name of Jesus to be renewed in the love and by the power of God's love for you. And I proclaim that you have not been given a spirit of fear to take you into slavery, but you've been given the spirit of adoption by which you can call out Abba, Father. To your heavenly Father, who even knows that a number of hairs are upon your head, he watches over you with such great clarity. He watches over you with such thoroughness. I break off the stronghold of depression and I speak to your chemical systems and I tell your chemical systems to be healed in the name of Jesus and I bless her to begin to start being the perfect amount of serotonins and endorphins as God created you to walk in. And I hope you took note of the fact that even Jehoshaphat, a great man of God, even he experienced fear, but he turned from looking at that fear, he turned to looking at God. And God says, you can do the same. I bless your chemical system to come into alignment with the will of God. And I bless you to have the perfect amount of serotonin and endorphins as God created so that you can take the challenges life brings, you can take them in stride rather than being destroyed. If there's anybody here that has knee or hip problems, would you come up to your left-hand side, my right-hand side, come right up here. And anybody here that has back or neck problems, would you come up to my left hand, your right hand side. If you have both, just stand wherever you want. God was into God was into multitasking before we even heard the phrase. So if you've got uh, leg, uh, back problems, you know, neck problems over here. If you've got, uh, what do we say over here? Knee, knee and hip problems over there. If you have hips, you're okay. So here's what I'd like to do, because God can use all of us uh, by his spirit. If one of these people is a friend of yours or a family member, or you just feel led to pray for them, just come stand behind them if you would, and put a hand upon their shoulder right now. Now, now I'm, I'm going to interrupt you three ladies, and I, I know you're friends, but I want you to forget about one another for a moment. I want you to focus on just receiving what the Lord has for you not one another, okay? So, those of you who need healing, just hold your hands out to the Lord right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, upon these knees 
particularly anybody with torn cartilage, damaged uh, ligaments in the feet, the knees, or damaged hip sockets, I speak a release of God's healing miracle power. Just close your eyes and let the Spirit work. I bless your hip sockets to be remade now in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I bless knees, torn cartilage, damaged ligaments, sinew, muscle, and where there's bone on bone, I speak regrowth in the name of Jesus of the tissue that God created to be there. I speak regrowth of the tissue God created to be there. I bless these hips, knees, and backs now in the name of Jesus to receive the healing power of the Holy Spirit. I take authority over bulging and herniated discs, and I tell those discs to be healed now in the name of Jesus. I tell discs to come into alignment that are out of position to slide over. I tell nerves that are being benched to be loosed into the peace of God right now. I tell muscles that are in the wrong position by the power of the Holy Spirit, slide over and be in the correct position as God created. There's somebody around here, or maybe you're in the room, but maybe just right up here that suffers from fibromyalgia. Uh, who is that person? Is it you? Just uh, hold your hands out to the Lord if I could have a, can I have one of the ladies? Just put a hand, yeah, uh, on her mid-back area there. I'm sorry, what is your name? Linda, Linda, in the name of Jesus, I took authority over the pain and the weariness in your back and your upper legs, and I speak a release of God's healing power, and I took authority over that spirit of affliction called fibromyalgia, and I command to let go of you now. I command the hooks to come out in the name of Jesus. And Linda, I speak to your immune system and I speak to your energy levels and your chemical system, and I speak renewal right now to your chemical system, and I bless your energy levels, your vitality to be restored to you in the name of Jesus, and I take authority over insomnia, and I bless you to begin to enjoy a good night's sleep and to wake up refreshed in the mornings. Your energy level come back now, your chemical system restored, and the pain in the back and the lower and upper legs gone. Freedom to you. You afflicting spirit, you have no place here. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Freedom now in the name of Jesus. Besides these two women, there's, uh, I believe it could be some men, but I believe there's some women here that you have thyroid problems as well. Is that anybody here? Okay. 
Okay, just hold your hand up to the Lord if that's you. And if you're around one of these women raising hand, just put a hand uh, near their neck. Don't choke them, but just kind of put a hand there. In the name of Jesus, I speak a release of divine healing to your thyroid right now. I take authority out of what's out of balance, and I bless your thyroid to be healed and begin to start operating. I bless your energy levels to come back to you, and I bless your chemical system, all the hormones and everything else to be restored to you in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we speak divine healing to you, and we call thyroid into perfect health and bless your chemical systems to be fully functioning bless you to wake up with energy in the mornings in the name of Jesus I'm gonna I'm gonna hand uh, the microphone over to um, Mark wherever he's at but here's what I'd like you to do. And now, let me tell you this in advance. Um, most healings happen after getting prayer that God does. Most healings, you begin to see significant changes between two to three hours and two to three days. I mean, I, I've, I can't tell you how many actual miracles we've had where people have felt nothing in the meeting, but then they wake up in the middle of the night or the next morning and everything's different. But there will be some of you right now tonight that we prayed for, for feet, knees, hips, backs, that already something is going to be dramatically different. Serious decrease in pain, increase of mobility. And so as I turn things over to Mark, I just want you to test a little bit, wiggle around, jump off a chair, or I don't know. Uh, but test it a little bit, something that would be a little bit awkward or just mildly stressful. Test it. And then let one of the leaders here know what's going on. So there we go. Oh, and uh, there's some great books written by a wonderful person out there with CDs. Uh, uh, the book Breakthrough from Times and Times of Breakdown is there. The book on healing and uh, one of the one of the two CD sets. In all seriousness, I would I would if I could I'd give it away to everyone everywhere I go. It's a two CD set called The Power of Blessings. Proverbs 18.21 says life and death are found in the power of the tongue. And when we as Christians learn to use our tongues not for criticism, have you ever thought about whatever side of the political line you're on, whatever politician, president, or former politician you distinctly dislike, have you ever thought about what would happen if every time you thought about them, you just blessed them in the name of Jesus? Come on. I see some of you. I still don't like them. But anyway, but there's death and life that's found in the power of the tongue, and it's a two-CD set. And I want to encourage you, if you want to grow in things that result from speaking, like prophecy, evangelism, healing the sick, 101 is, as James talked about, taming the tongue. And you'll find that as an encouragement. Amen. Thank you so much, Mark. I want to challenge you to not just bless those that you don't like, but to bless yourself. Yes. 
because for some of us in this room, and we don't need to raise our hands, but we're very good at criticizing ourselves. So your assignment before you leave here is to fix your eyes on Jesus and bless yourself with the words that Jesus would bless you with. That I love you, that I've called you, that I've chosen you, all those kinds of things that Jesus would speak over you. I assign you the task before you walk out of here to bless yourself with Jesus' words. Because as Mark says, there's power in the power of the tongue. I'm going to speak a blessing over all of us. We'll be dismissed. It doesn't mean you have to leave, but we'll be dismissed. I also want to give you the permission to bless one another. But I will speak a blessing over all of us. As I guess the dad in the house. (laughs) So Father, you have touched lives in this room this weekend. You will continue to touch lives in this room and around the Grand Strand as a result of what you've done here. So we choose to accept your challenge, to worship you, to fix our eyes on you, to be clothed with you and filled with you, Holy Spirit, so that we can live for you in a world that needs you. And so I bless you, every one of you, under the sound of my voice right now, I bless you to go deeper in all that Mark has imparted to us. bless you to see more fruit. I bless you to see more breakthrough. I bless you to see more of your Lord Jesus face to face.